Hey, New City Church. I'm Valerie's husband. We've been married almost 40 years. We have three adult kids, and two of them sat under Chris's ministry when he was a middle school youth pastor 20 plus years ago. And uh, we've been coming here, we've been members here, I think 11 or 12 years. No offense to y'all in the big house, but we're regulars at Video Cafe, so I'm gonna give a shout out, hey folks in video. Um, when, first, when Chris first asked me to speak, about two months ago, he said, you know, every once in a while we want to have some older guys fill out the lineup. <laughs> I don't know what he was talking about, but here I am. He also asked me to mention Search Ministries. We're, we're a partner with the Search for many, many years, and if you're not familiar, 27 years ago, I'll just say this, our founders asked me to consider a search plant. We were living in Baltimore at the time, and uh, the Lord led us here, and in keeping with this series, we went, and we came here, and it's been a dream for us. We have today a team of guys, many of you probably know Ken Schultz, Chip Cash, Chad Blankenberg, maybe David Parsons. It's my privilege to work with these guys um, in the city. If you're not familiar with search, often people call us adult young life or young life for adults. We create safe places for people to kick the tires and explore reasons for faith, give them a chance to explore objections and figure out where it all fits. And it's a privilege to do this in a relational atmosphere with a focus on the gospel and helping people also learn to share the gospel in, in meaningful ways. And so that's what we get to do. And it's a real privilege. Um, years ago, my earliest mentor was Search. It was one of those guys who had an incredible ability to take a conversation and shift it away from criticism or shift it away from gossip. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I found that unnerving. But he was so good at gently taking what could have been a negative conversation and turning it into a positive result. And he taught me something that I want to kind of tell you about in just a second. But first, just you need to understand, I'm a pastor type. And so every day I hear all kinds of stuff. I know a lot of things about a lot of people. In fact, just yesterday I was talking to someone do you want to hear about it? So, do you want to hear about it? Yes? No? Yeah, you do? Well, can you keep a secret? You can? So can I. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you what happened. But something happened uh, in today's passage. We don't know the full story. It's a defining moment between two mission trips. Over the last couple of weeks, Chris has covered extensively um, in Acts chapter 13, 14, and 15, the very first mission trip of Paul and Barnabas. 112 verses with incredible only God moments. Today, we're just going to look at six verses in a passage that I did not choose. Chris fit me in the series, but what I've found is that this passage chose me. And you'll, you'll hear why in just a little bit. Uh, it's an interlude. It's an historian's segue, if you will, because something happened and the author chose not to tell us what happened, well, at least not the, the gossip or the details. 
Um, it's going to set the scene for the next growth spurt of the early church, the second mission journey. So before we look at the text, join me, if you will, in prayer. Father, you are amazing. And we are so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for your word. Thank you for the living words of scripture that your spirit has inspired through the men and the women who've walked before us. Speak to us now through your word, Father. Open our minds to hear your word. Open our hearts to receive your word. And Lord, open our hands to, and direct our steps to live your word. It's by your grace and for your glory that we pray in Jesus' name. Here's what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through 41. He said, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And if you notice, there was an argument. It was a sharp disagreement, is what the text said. And that led to a mission split. There's a lot more Luke could have told us. There's an impasse between Barnabas and Paul. Luke's an avid historian, meticulous with details. I'm going to be a little meticulous with details in the first part of this message. He traveled extensively with Paul, probably was in prison with him in Rome for a bit. He knew so much more than what he wrote and what he could have told us. They had a disagreement, there's a breakup, and that's all he tells us. And so what I'd like to do today is just stick to the text and not speculate too much beyond that. Because they were the dream team. They were ready to go again. You saw at the end, after some, well, at the beginning, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Well, let's go back a bit. The characters. We first met Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. He sold some land, gave it to the early disciples, to the early church, to help support them. He's a Levite from the island of Cyprus. He's known as the son of encouragement, a title that, that described his personality. He was a giver of people. He was a lover of people. He built people up. He's the guy you want to be around because he'll make you feel great. He was an encourager. Well, later he's also recognized as a full apostle with all the authority that the early disciples had. After, Paul, after Saul was converted and later called Paul, it was Barnabas who went for, to bat with Paul or for Paul before the disciples in Jerusalem. Um, they wanted to reject him. They didn't trust him. They knew what he had done before he'd converted to Christ. But he convinced him that he was ready to go. And later he recruited Paul to minister with him in Antioch where the first mission was launched. And that's what Chris has been covering the last couple of weeks. 
Together they brought the good news of Christ to Syria and Cyprus in, the, in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. They dealt with a gnarly theological challenge in Jerusalem with the disciples. There were internal conflicts, but they scored a big win with Peter when they recognized that both Jews and Gentiles were equal followers of Christ equal in Christ's grace, no longer bound by the crushing civil and ceremonial laws of Judaism. It was a huge moment. So now it's mission accomplished. But here's the immediate context. If you're looking at the text, if you, go, if you look at the paragraph right before it, in beginning at verse 30 through 35, this sets the scene. So when they were sent off from Jerusalem, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter announcing the new focus on grace. And Judas and Silas, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophet, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace to Jerusalem by the brothers, to those who sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. At this moment, Paul and Barnabas are forged ever closer because of persecution, because of issues in the church, the conflict they just dealt with, the challenge they had to solve in Jerusalem. They had a common cause. They had a common bond. They had a common commitment. They were united around bringing this new gospel message, the Great Commission, to strengthen the church. Time passes. They say, let's do it again. And then something happens. They hit a snag. What happened? Well, they had a large disagreement. But go back for a second. Here's some details that Luke brings in. Back in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, John, called Mark, was first introduced. And we're told that he was the son of Mary who hosted a gathering in Jerusalem when Peter was sprung from jail by the angels. He was in prison. Angels came, cut him loose, and he shows up at Mary's house where the early church was gathering. John Mark was there. He was her son. His Jewish name is John. Mark was his Greek name, more appropriate to the people that they're now ministering to. Mark had grown up in the community of the faith. In chapter 12, verse 25, Mark, John Mark is recruited by Barnabas and Paul to assist them on their first mission. But then in Acts chapter 13, about a third of the way through the trip, he bolted. He left. He went back to Jerusalem. And that's all we're told. We're not told that they had a fight. We're not told that he did anything at that point. He just left. Maybe he had to go back to school. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he stubbed his toe. Maybe he was uncomfortable with the possibilities that would lie ahead. We don't know what the, con if, what the conflict was or what his reasons were. All we know is he just punted early and, excuse me, and went back. But we do know this. It may not have been the first time he'd ever left something early. If you were to look in, in Mark, the gospel he wrote, chapter 14, verse 51, we see there an account where he talks about an unnamed person who fled the scene when Jesus was going to the cross. They said he ran away without his underwear. He was the first streaker. I'm sorry, 
bad dad joke, you know, but you get what you pay for. The disciples also scattered. He wasn't alone. They all bolted from the scene. We don't know why Mark left. We just know that he did leave. So now Barnabas wants to take Mark on their second mission trip, and Paul says, no, no way. Mark didn't finish what he started with us the first time, probably can't trust him on the second time. And that's the last we will ever hear about Mark or Barnabas in the book of Acts. Luke says nothing more about him. In Paul's mind, maybe John Mark didn't have the benefit of experience that he would have had if he'd stuck it out. Maybe Paul anticipated the need for a veteran because he knew what would, lie, what would lie ahead and a lot more persecution was coming. He couldn't risk another bailout. Paul was probably mission-focused. I think Paul was right not to take John Mark with him. But I also think he was, that Barnabas was right to want to take him with him. Maybe Barnabas saw an opportunity to nurture a young emerging leader who would have learned from his his mistakes and failures. Maybe he already had. Barnabas, the encourager, knows that just give him a second chance. Give him a mulligan. Let's see how he can hit the ball. Barnabas was focused on the man. Barnabas was focused on the worker. Paul's focused on the mission. He's focused on the work ahead. Both had good reasons, and maybe both were right and realized it. You know, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do because you're called to do it. We don't know what happened behind the scenes. We just know that at this point, they decided to split. Maybe Mark wasn't ready for the job ahead, but remember this, Paul and Barmas had a long history together. They're godly men. There had to be good reasons for this breakup. It was called a sharp disagreement, probably a strong, vigorous disagreement. Strong enough, though, to separate this dream team. I think, I'm just going to speculate, that it was probably a friendly fight. If you've been to court and you see lawyers that square off against each other on either side of the bench and the arguments are heated, then at lunch they go eat lunch together and talk about their next golf game. It wasn't personal, it was professional. Linebackers in the NFL will crush each other on the, on the ball field. And when the game's over, they meet at center field and they pray together. It's professional. It's not personal. It was a friendly fight, maybe. Maybe they were both right. But here's the key to this passage. Whatever happened behind the scenes, it was a defining moment in mission history. Because they split. Instead of going in one direction, they went in two directions and doubled their coverage. The decision in Acts 15, 39, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so they went, which is the key of this series. They went and they strengthened the churches that they had inspired. Barnabas grabs John Mark and heads back home to Cyprus, He doesn't abandon his nephew. He takes him under his wing. I'm guessing that Mark probably felt like he'd been benched, but I think he was redshirted so that Barnabas could spend extra time developing him for the future. 
Paul and Silas go and encourage the churches in Syria and Cilicia and Galatia, and then they break new ground in Greece and Europe. Ephesus in Turkey, actually. Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, and more. It's a team ministry. They go off in pairs, just like the disciples did when Jesus sent them out. They split, and then they multiplied. Hmm. When atoms split, it releases energy. When cells split, it creates life. When small groups split, they create room for more people. When y'all move to the 9 o'clock service, it's going to open up the, the aisles for this. It's a good thing for the gospel. Am I right, Brian? Sometimes the Spirit speaks in ways that we don't know. You said that earlier, and I was hoping you would. There's no mention of Barnabas or John Mark in the rest of Acts, but everything else does focus on Paul's mission, and it goes even beyond the Middle East all the way to Italy. No matter what happened, that's what happened. And he doesn't tell us why, and we really don't need to know. But here's what we do know from Paul's letters. What we do know is that the relationships ended well for these guys. No animosity, no anger, no acrimony. They finished well. Here's what we know. In a letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives a shout out to Barnabas as a fellow tent maker toward the end of, of his term. Years later, Paul gives two shout-outs at least to Mark, to John Mark, one in Philemon and one in Colossians. He was useful to him. He served him while he was in prison. A few years later, Paul told Timothy in one of his letters that Mark was useful to him and useful to Christ the Master. In Peter's first letter, he calls Mark his son, likely mentored him in a very close relationship off and on since Mark was a teenager. He may have led him to Christ. And this is why many believe that Mark's gospel reflected much of Peter's experience and teaching that he wrote through Peter's eyes from spending time with him. This young adult who punted on his first mission trip writes a profound account of the life of Jesus with the focus on Jesus as the perfect servant, which is very relevant to the life of the Greek audience that he was writing to. In fact, we think Mark was with Peter when Peter was in Rome when Nero reigned. You may remember in Mark 10:45, which I think is the key that unlocks the door of all of Mark. He said, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus became one of us so that we could become one of his that Jesus came to die so that we could live and so that we could live again. And because he's risen, we will rise again. God came, and then we go for him. Well, let me tell you the rest of my story. Um, I can identify the most with John Mark. Um, there was a point in my life and early in my career where I was benched because I used very poor judgment. I'd been with IBM for several years and we left the business and went to seminary in Dallas. Three years into seminary, our home church called and they asked me to double down on my course load, finish early, sell our house, move back to Little Rock, Arkansas, where we were from, and help them plant a new church with a very 
popular author that, that, that was there then. So we sold our house. We finished early. I was their man. They told me so. Um, it was a done deal, but I still had to go through the formality of filling out an employment application. I didn't take it seriously. And so I submitted the application. One of the elders called, and he's going to start looking for a house for us, and everything's good. And then about a week or so later, I got a call from the lead pastor. And he told me that he and his wife had had a check in their spirit and told the elders, and the elders agreed that it was not the right time for me to join them. I had a check in my spirit too, but I wanted to go back to Arkansas. I was ready to go. I figured we could overcome anything. They didn't think that. I didn't know why or what I would do next or where I would go or with whom. I was right in the center of God's will with no clue what it was. Unemployed. Then I got a call a couple weeks later from some folks in Baltimore asking me to come there and help them plant a church. And so we did. We ran to Baltimore. We started a church and had a great experience. And it was there that we met Search Ministries, who I'm with today. And it was there that we were sent to Charlotte, gosh, 27 years ago, to bring Search here. And we've been grateful for an incredible privilege. You want to know what I did to cause the church in Little Rock to back off? Do you? Better be good. <laughs> Just say yes. Can you keep a secret? You can't? Well, leave the room. No, this is no secret. I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on it. Um, I didn't take the application seriously. One of the questions on the application was list three of your greatest strengths. So I put cocky, dogmatic, and a third word I can't remember. Actually, I do remember now. I didn't remember in the earlier service. I could lift, I could deadlift 700 pounds. Yeah, right. I can't deadlift 70 pounds. But I looked up cocky. Well, it means cheerfully confident. I was a frat boy. I'm cool. I'm cocky. Cocky also means conceited. Oh, I looked at dogmatic, and that means arrogantly assertive. Hmm. A month later, I got a call from another one of the elders, who's an old friend in my home church. Some of you may know him. King Crow lived here for several years, about 15, 20 years ago. King called me up, and, and I've got notes from January 15, 1987, right here from that phone call. And he called me to tell me why they pulled the offer from me. He said, and I'm going to quote him from my notes. He said, Davis, with your background, we felt that you were the best experienced and best equipped past, present, and future. Well, yeah. <laughs> More juice than anyone I know. Yeah. But we delayed for a check in our spirits. We feel like you're driving in your flesh and lack spiritual maturity. Oh, you're a very impatient fellow. Oh, 
naturally gifted, but with a tendency to rely on yourself and not the Lord. Oh, and they were right. They were so right. You know, sometimes we're uprooted in order to be repotted. If you or know about things like that, a pot can become root-bound. And when it becomes root-bound, half the roots are dead, there's not enough soil, and they don't thrive at the capacity they could. But you take that out of the pot, shake it up a little bit, pull off the dead roots, put it in a new bigger pot with fresh soil, and it can thrive, and it can grow. God allows pain sometimes for growth. I was benched because I made a stupid decision. (laughs) It could be chalked up to youthful arrogance and independence, but what it was, it was a very unhealthy attitude for a young minister. In fact, it's a very unhealthy attitude for anyone to be cocky and dogmatic and arrogant and independent. Well, I was benched for a season. You know, when an athlete on the basketball court gets benched he wants to stay in the game but when the coach calls him out and puts him down maybe he needs rest maybe he needs to see something he couldn't see when he's in the game maybe he'll sit close to the coach and hear the coach's voice and learn something from the coach maybe he'll think about what he did and what he could do better so that when he goes back into the game he knows the plays he's got a larger perspective and he can contribute at a higher level and play as a team and not as an individual. I'm learning with that thought that sometimes when we sit close enough to the Lord, when we're quiet enough to hear the Father's voice, it can be an intimate time of deep and personal instruction and coaching to pray by listening, not for what I want, but to get in alignment with what God wants, the coach wants, to ask for more of his spirit, to ask for more of his kingdom, to ask for more of his glory, to rejoice and pray and give thanks, to be able to look back with understanding so that you can look forward with vision. I like J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in the Raleigh area. He said this about prayer's providence. He says, God sometimes answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for had we known what he knows. say that again. God sometimes answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for had we known what he knows. Well, the rest of our story, I find three anchors in my life that I've learned to hold on to when my plans don't pan out the way I expected. These are very simple reminders of, I think, some timeless truths that many of you probably already know. For me, the first is Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, which says, Moses writes, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. In other words, God, I mean, go with what you know. Stick with what God has revealed. Stick with what we do know. If you aren't part of the solution, then you're probably not going to be part of the... If you're not... (laughs) Let me start over. 
If you aren't part of the solution, then you don't need to know about the problem. Well, tell me about it so I can pray with you. That's okay. God's got this. God is in control, and he is in control for the good of the gospel, for you and through you, for others. We've learned from Paul's writings in Romans chapter 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes. And that's a process, and we're all part of that process. From Genesis 45 and 50, we know from the life of Joseph that something happened that was powerful. He reveals his identity to his brothers after they had sold him as a slave and treated him like he was dead to his father. And years later, he's the head of Egypt, and they come to him, and he stuns them by revealing his identity and announcing that he had no hard feelings for what they did to him because he understood that God had sent him to Egypt to ultimately provide for their families. Then later in chapter 50, verse 20, he told them that what they meant for evil purposes, God meant for an even greater good. Even when we're unfaithful and out of alignment, God is faithful. That's what Paul wrote Timothy later. And he'll redirect our steps. He knows what he's doing. He can say, I've got this. And I like to say it's his deal. It's not my deal. And when it's his deal, well, I trust him. One last quick story. A few years after college, my oldest daughter, Shannon, who had been under Chris's leadership back in middle school, she told us that she was going to move to Australia, work there for about a year. Said, okay. When I was your age, we had a mortgage and kids on the way, and um, I had a job, and, and I've never been to Australia. So, Shannon, go. Sorry, parents, I may have given your kids some permission there. We're driving her to the airport. We're, we're just coming off the exit on the Billy Graham Parkway where that little airplane wing thing looks. And she said, Dad, I may not see you for a year. What wisdom do you have for me to remember while I'm in Australia? I am not ready for this question. I can see her in the rearview mirror, and I'm looking with my left eye, Lord, what am I going to say? And I'm just desperately praying and under my breath. And here's what came out of my mouth. I said, Shannon, trust the Lord every day and everything will be okay. Yeah, she's laughed too. Oh, dad, come on. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in a new version that I'd never heard before. It just kind of fell out. Trust the Lord every day and everything will be okay. And it stuck to me. <laughs> I don't know about Shannon. It's an anchor line. What about you? Where are your anchor lines? Is my walk in alignment with God's will? Am I praying your kingdom come, your will be done? You know, early in the service, we heard this. He himself is our peace. Earlier this week, an old friend of mine from Arkansas posted something on his Facebook, and it was a prayer. He's going through advanced stages with a nasty cancer. And I've been praying this prayer all week that he posted, and I want to commend it to you. So I'm, I want to close with this prayer and just ask you to join me. Make it your prayer, if you would. Um, this will be our closing prayer here.
Heavenly Father, I release to you the burdens that I have been carrying, burdens that you never intended for me to carry. I cast all my cares upon you, all my worries, all my fears. You have told me not to be anxious about anything, but rather to bring everything to you with thankfulness. Father, calm my restless spirit, quiet my anxious heart, still my troubling thoughts with the calm assurance that you are in control. I let go of my grip upon the selfish things I have been hanging on to. Lord, with open hands and an open heart, I come to you. I release to you, to your will, all that I am trying to manipulate. I release to your authority all that I am trying to control. I release to your timing all that I have been striving to make happen. I thank you for your promise to sustain me, preserve me, and guard all that I have entrusted to your keeping. Saturate my heart and mind with your peace that passes all understanding. Father, may your will be done in my life, in your time, and in your way. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.